0: On the eve of the 31st of December, in the final hours of 2020, Mr. Clint Inzala from Livingston, Zambia sat down with us at the Polyglot Barbershop to discuss a range of issues. One of the topics he touched on runs deep in the hearts and minds of his compatriots and comrades at this hour. Today is the 18th of June, 2021. And while the people of Zambia mourn the recent passing of Dr. Kenneth Kaunda, the country's founding president, we roll back the tape to this segment of our interview. So, generally, Zambia was, um, like you mentioned earlier, the same. It shares borders with eight countries. Eight countries. Countries on the southern part of Africa and countries which, are like the Democratic Republic of Congo, which we share the longest border, is termed as being in Central Africa. While Tanzania, on our northern border, time to be in East Africa. So literally sometimes some people find it very hard on where to place Zambia. Is it a Southern African country or a Central African country? So it has got that geographical placing which makes it very unique to say literally when you're in certain parts of Zambia, of Zambia you feel more like you're in East Africa. And when you step into certain parts of Zambia you feel more like you're in Southern Africa. So what that meant to say, out of the eight neighboring countries we had, when we got independent, only two were also independent. The Democratic Republic of Congo and and Malawi, uh, three, Tanzania, Malawi, and, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. So all our neighbor, five of our neighboring countries, we are still being ruled by colonial settler regimes. And our first Republican president, who oh, by far is one of the most decent and revolutionary African leaders, Dr. Kenneth Kaunda, He took it upon himself to say, as long as our neighbors are not free, the neighboring countries are not liberated, we are not going to get any value of our independence. We cannot be happy as an independent nation when we are surrounded by colonies. uh, When we are surrounded by neighboring countries who are still under the iron cloud of colonialism. So as a result, he opened up his country and welcomed all the liberation movements from these neighboring countries. The African National Congress was based, its head office was in Zambia for nearly three decades. They had their their secretariat in Osaka. They had their training camps, military training camps for the which is the military wing, which was the military wing of the NC. They had them dotted around Zambia. We had the liberation movements from Zimbabwe. Zanla, which was one of the two, was initially based in Zambia. But then later on, when Mozambique became independent and there were a few issues in Zambia, they moved to Mozambique. But another wing for the liberation movement, ZAPO, remained in Zambia until the end. SWAPO, which was the Namibian liberation movement, was also had its office, a headquarters in Zambia. So what it means, these liberation movements, had, they were not only given a home in Zambia, but also received a significant amount of material support from Zambia, from the Zambian government, the Zambian people. And also, like a human cost was paid. Cause like the South African government and the Rhodesian government, they carried out a number of raids into the Zambian territories Attacking these liberation camps, these freedom fighters and some of these freedom fighters who they were targeting, they lived in the residential areas where ordinary Zambians also lived. So now what would happen also, Zambians got killed, a number of Zambians got killed, including one gentleman who was a very prominent citizen. He was the head of the national, uh, the state broadcaster. He was killed simply because he was driving a Land Rover. And the Randova was a vehicle which a lot of these guerrilla movements use, these liberation movements. So, when the Rhodesian Air Force planes were attacking Zambia, and he was driving to his farm, that's how he was taken out. And then they were also sitting in the place east of the capital. There's a place east of the capital uh, called Kavalamanja. Uh, 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 that place, a lot of civilians died because the Rhodesian forces at one time wanted to attack camps in that region. And then, like I said, most of these camps were certain villages where ordinary people also lived. So literally, if you are going to attack a camp using helicopters and whatever, I don't know about the military technology they have then, but it was in the 70s. So if you are going to be firing artillery from up there, and then there are these in the village people are confused, running in all directions, and some of these guerrilla movements, literally, their members, their armed members, were just people who used to wear civilian clothes and carry AK-47s. So if you're up there in the them, it would be very hard. First of all, if you do care to distinguish between civilians and combatants, it would be hard. But again, it's important to mention, to say these regimes didn't care about civilian casualties. Because they said in their eyes, they used to say these communities were harboring terrorists like they called them. So to them it was not a big issue to kill civilians. We heard of the Kasinga massacre in Angola, where South African forces literally attacked a camp which was predominantly occupied by women and children. There was also the Chimoyo camp. Chimoyo camp in Mozambique was attacked in a similar in a, in a similar in a similar fashion. Anna, let me just talk to you. these guys are doing some something. Mandela and um, through Ramaposa. Because Mandela he went to prison before the NC moved to Zambian. Then through Ramaposa when the NC went into exile, uh sudden elements were kind of instructed to remain behind the country and mobilize behind because they say oh, we can't go into exam so three was mobilizing in the labor sector he became he rose through the ranks of the labor movement and became the founding leader of the national union of miners NUM. so and then later on because the NC was banned, it was declared a terrorist organization and illegal organization. So those who remained, there were a number of organizations from different parts of the country who, at the same time, they were kind of autonomous. But then later on, towards the eight, end of the 80s, they formed the UDF, United Democratic Front, which kind of continued to mobilize the activists in the absence of the vacuum left by the banning of the NC. Well, in the yeah, in the country then officially it was banned. But it was operating. I mean they didn't need to be to be given a stamp of approval by a pathetic government. But if you are going to organize a march past or something, it couldn't be organized under the, na- the name of the NC. So that's how the UDF came to be about. And when the NC was unbanned in nineteen ninety and mandated from prison, the UDF was dissolved into the NC. So it was merging of the UDF, which are the local structures that remain in the country and the NC structures, which were based now in a number of countries. Of course, the headquarters in Zambia, there was an office in Maputo, there were training camps in southern Angola. Yeah, so those now merged back into the NC. Yeah, so basically, Jacob Zuma, uh, who was the second post-apartheid president after Nelson Mandela, spent most of his years in Osaka, in Zambia, working at the NC head office in different roles. And his wife lectured at the University of Zambia during those years. So they literally spent decades, more than two decades in Zambia, which by any chance, if you're going to live in any country for that long, you kind of become embedded in that society. That's a day, it gets embedded in you. Jacob Zuma was the deputy head of intelligence at the NC headquarters so he also spent a very significant amount of time in zambia and also kagaremo motande was south african president for about a year after tabombek was kind of recalled by the nc and uh, technically impeached yeah he also spent years in zambia so literally like most of the nc ministers the nc leaders majority of them lived in zambia because that was head of his life even those who didn't live in zambia who are based in other parts of the world, um, they frequently travel to Zambia. Because they had, that time it wasn't an era of Zoom calls. There was no WhatsApp or whatever social media. So they literally had to fly in, to attend meetings, to give reports and all that. So that was why Zambia was in the crosshairs of these colonial regimes. Because it seemed like as a facilitator for these movements. So yeah, Zambia did... Play a significant role at a very huge cost, at a very huge cost economically, according to some estimates, more than 40 billion US dollars at that time, which in current terms would be much more money. That was in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, so literally, certain elements actually they claim to say that money should have been invested in other social together to build an economy, call they literally they say, wow, we should have let the other countries sort out their own problems. Call they say to a certain extent that damaged the country's economy or whatever. Yeah, yeah, it might be an element of truth, but I mean, it would have been, I mean, sometimes in life, it's not just about what is economically viable or feasible, but there's a bit of morality of sometimes the moral thing might not bring the most economic returns. But it still remained the right thing which needed to be done, and it's good that it was done. Zambia became independent 16 years before Zimbabwe, so how did that affect it the affects us. And the, the interaction was that, the, like I said, these liberation movements, like Zapu, was based literally in our valley. The, that was their area of uh, operation. That was the area of operation, and they all affected the local people. Because the Rhodesian forces, like I said earlier, the colonial forces, used to cross into Zambia hunting after these liberation fighters, and they would attack the local communities for harboring terrorists. So we used to hear that a lot of people uh, they used to get killed by those shimsa, oh yeah, they won. And this is because, like I said, those people were connected. Zapu. Which was one of the, the wings which were led by Joshua Nkomo, is from the northern part of Zimbabwe. So, other than just being fellow Africans, they were neighboring ethnic groups. They are people who live together. So, if these liberation fighters, you see them passing with the AK 47 in the village, and they're really like, Oh, my, my children, let me slaughter a god for you. Let me give you a chicken. And yeah, all oh, that counted, even just giving food, a meal, counted as helping the terrorists in invaded brackets. So, People now, it was very hard. And even the area had a problem of landmines, which were left during that era. As late as 20, like some five years ago, some five years ago, there was a road which was being constructed in, in the valley where I come from. A landmine killed a Chinese because some of those, land, and yeah, a lot of people lost their legs and whatever from that war. Because, yeah, I mean, the government would plant landmines. And when they war ended, people just went back and nothing much was done to kind of demine the area. A bit of some demining was done, but it didn't totally. So even right now, we are not sure of what lives were. There was another case in another part of Zambia, which was a border Zimbabwe. Someone died because they picked up a grenade and they didn't know what it was. So they pulled the pin and it exploded. So now all those men... Visit us at the or send us an email at the shop at gmail.com. Listo vamos. Ala one, a la one and a two, a la one, two three.